Welcome to the 413th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is February 14th, 2022. Today I welcome Alessandra Giralaman, the author of Disaster Recovery Through the Lens of Justice. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. In the month ahead of us, we'll be having multiple COVID Calls per day. So I will announce any schedule changes on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word about COVID calls and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Troy Natus, former Winter Carnival Prince, dies at age 41 from COVID. This was written by Deanna Winninger and appeared in the Twin Cities, Minnesota Pioneer Press. This was published January 15th, 2022. Former St. Paul Winter Carnival Prince has died following a difficult battle with COVID-19. Troy Natus, age 41 of Maplewood, the 2010 Titan Prince of the North Wind, died January 13th at the Mayo Clinic. He was six feet, six inches tall, a big man, said his mother, Lynn Natus, but he always had a smile and a hug for everybody. Natus became ill with COVID in mid-December and was admitted to the Mayo Clinic on December 18th, 2021, after becoming severely dehydrated. The virus exacerbated issues with his heart and kidneys. Natus had a heart transplant nearly 18 years ago after a virus destroyed his heart and he later was diagnosed with kidney cancer. Troy touched more lives than we'll ever know, his family wrote in his obituary. He was a kind and gentle giant that always had time and a smile for all. He was the most compassionate friend. Lynn Natus spoke of her son over a boisterous crowd in an interview in mid-January. Members of the Winter Carnival family gathered at Mama T's Castle Tap, a sports bar in Little Canada that she managed with Troy. She got the nickname Mama T when trying to explain that she was the mother of a Titan. They're here telling stories about when they met Troy, she said. They're telling about the love that he gave them. They truly are a family. When you put out the alarm, they come running. Natus was born January 28, 1980 in Roseville to Ted and Lynn Natus. He had four sisters, Christy Finken, Brenda Hokum, Amy Kistner, and Teresa Sarakowski. After graduating Roseville High School in 1998, he joined the family business, Hammernick's Interior Solutions on Rice Street. He worked with his father for 26 years, becoming vice president of the company. In October of 2013, he married Monette Mormon, whom he met through the Winter Carnival. She was the 2012 East Wind Princess. They couldn't have children, so they loved on their three dogs and two cats, Lynn Natus said. After his appointment as Prince of the North Wind, he remained active in the St. Paul Winter Carnival and Titan Organization, which is an association of the former princes. Though he battled through years of health issues and had his own mountains to climb, he never complained or failed to put others ahead of himself, the family wrote. 
His hug could heal a broken spirit, and it did for so many. Despite COVID protocols, Lynn was adamant about being by his side at the end. I told them I was there the day he was born, and I will be there the day he leaves me, she said. She and Troy's wife, Monette, sat on either side of him, holding his hands as he died. Tribute to Troy Natus, who passed away of COVID, January of 2022. Okay, let's turn to the conversation for today. I'm so pleased to bring my guest, Alessandra Chiralaman, to COVID Calls. Let me introduce her, Alessandra Geralaman is an associate professor and the director of the doctoral program in emergency management at Jacksonville State University in Alabama. She is a community resilience specialist and applied researcher at the Lowlander Center, as well as a co-founder of Hazard Resilience, a United States-based consultancy, providing leadership and expertise in disaster recovery, risk reduction, and hazard policy. In 2019, she published a great book titled Disaster Recovery Through the Lens of Justice, and recently released a follow-up edited volume, Justice, Equity, and Emergency Management. Dr. Tralaman is a subject matter expert in climate adaptation, hazard mitigation, disaster recovery, and resilience, with a long history of working in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. Alessandra Tralaman, welcome to COVID Calls. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the COVID situation is looking like there today. I'm joining you from the city of New Orleans in Louisiana in the United States. Um, right now, we are starting to see our numbers go down a little bit, and we have a decently high vaccination rate compared to the rest of the state of Louisiana. However, we are starting the Mardi Gras season, and so there's really a big question up in the air as far as what sort of impact that'll have on the numbers moving forward. Mardi Gras was modified last year, canceled last year. What, what happened last year? Mardi Gras was canceled last year, and this year it's running with a, a few less parades and slightly shorter routes. But by and large, uh, Mardi Gras is, is back, for better or for worse. Do you have a sense of the culture of those who participate in the, in the floats? Is there an expectation of uh, vaccination? I assume there's not a mandate, but is there any way to get a feel for how careful people are being, or it's just not possible to know? To be honest, I think it's a little early to know, and I've also personally stayed away from the festivities to date. Um, it's my understanding that some of the, the larger crews are requiring vaccinations. There may even be a city mandate to that effect. Mm. I think there's always challenges around compliance, and of course, no matter what, it's very large crowds of people. Oh, Alessandra, I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing a personal memory of this time, something that really stands in for this COVID period for them. Would you mind sharing? Of course. You know, I was thinking about this question leading up to our, our conversation. And for me, COVID is this sort of juxtaposition on the one hand of some very um, beautiful moments spent at home with my daughter stepping aside and away from some of the day to day of working in emergency management while at the same time, the immense sorrow of watching everything that's been unfolding, a lot of which uh, was perhaps preventable and, and certainly to be expected when you look at some of the disparate outcomes. And so my, my COVID memory, I chose to really share something that was uh, maybe a little more warm-hearted. And, and that is, um, remember very fondly a day a little over a year ago where it was raining and I was home in the middle of the day and I was trying to work. And my daughter was trying to do school from home. And it 
started pouring. And so we, we just dropped everything and went outside and we played in the rain and she jumped on my back and we ran around and got soaking wet. And it was just a, a beautiful moment away from, from the pain and the stress and, and everything else that we're all dealing with collectively right now. Oh, thank you so much for, for sharing that. It actually triggers a great memory for me um, early in the pandemic in the, in the sort of lockdown phase. Um, and my boys were home from school and I was home from work. So we were doing a lot of hiking around and, and I was living in Princeton at that time. And, uh, that day, I was feeling really ambitious. There was a storm coming, but I was encouraging the boys. I said, we can do it. We can do it. And we kept going. And they both gave up on me. They said, no way, Dad. We're out. And they started to head home. And this enormous storm broke. And I, they made it home just in time, about five minutes. And I've never been more soaked in my life. <laughs> it's funny that we both have this kind of similar experience. And I would have been at work on that day. We would have never had that moment. Right. So um, I, had, I had totally forgotten about that until you shared that memory. Thank you. Um, I'd like to get a little of your backstory, if I could, uh, before we talk about your book and, and the work that you do now. How did you come into emergency management? How did you become interested in, in uh, concepts like disaster resilience, both in theory, but also in practice? Well, Hurricane Katrina is certainly a, a big part of my story. I was living in New Orleans actually for several years prior to the storm, but I was really interested in looking at urban school systems and the many ways in which um, they've been failing children. And it's difficult to look at the issues going on for youth in a city like New Orleans and not take into account disaster risk, right? Even prior to Hurricane Katrina. And when Hurricane Katrina hit, um, the issues were just very glaring, and there was also sort of a confluence of events where I found myself without a home, without a car, without a job, and I just so happened um, to have some some colleagues at the University of New Orleans that were doing work related to disasters who had been sort of nudging me to think about looking at disasters and emergencies, and it, it seemed like the time had come, and and after that. You know, in, in truth, we're seeing so many events back to back. There are so many disproportionate impacts to communities of place, to indigenous communities, to small rural areas that once I was doing this work, I couldn't look away and I couldn't step away from it. Let's stick with, with Katrina for a moment, if we can. Um, of course, it was a devastating storm and people watched it. I mean, maybe it, it's... Um, is a disaster that, you know, that and September 11 are ones that Americans have a sh some shared experience of, uh, if not a personal experience of. What was, you know, for you, particularly in the months after Katrina, what were you expecting to happen and what happened? I mean, was there, you know, to take us back to that time, if you could. Sure. I, one of the things that, um, was perhaps surprising for me with Hurricane Katrina and, and maybe in retrospect shouldn't have been. It was really just how much of a disaster takes place after the disaster, right? We tend in emergency management to sort of draw these sharp lines when in fact a lot of the impacts that families felt, that individuals felt and that the community felt took time to really manifest. And you have that, that shock at the moment, but gentrification happens over time people's negative experiences interacting with bureaucracy 
with insurance, with all of these systems that they may have expected would help them recover and they then found really were not well suited to that task and perhaps were even actively complicit in their displacement. And so watching that unfold um, was to me a surprise at the time and, and continuing to watch those same processes unfold after Hurricane Maria, after Hurricane Sandy, after Hurricane Ida, it, it really strikes me that, that at some point we're complicit in a certain measure of bureaucratic evil. The other thing that I very much see in looking at an event like Hurricane Katrina is this really strong desire um, on the part of emergency management, on the part of government, and perhaps even on the part of individuals to say that the event is over, right? To draw a line and say recovery is over. Now we are we are back or we have a new normal, if that's the term people want to use. But in fact, you know, many years later, we we still see impacts um, to people who were children at the time of the storm, people who lost generational wealth or housing, people who got displaced. And these impacts are really far reaching and, and we can't simply draw a line and say, OK, the event is over, the disaster is over. And I think we're seeing something similar with COVID, the strong desire to call it done when it's still unfolding. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about trust and Katrina. I remember, you know, in the months and years after being in so many meetings where there was important research done, <clears throat> excuse me, about who people turned to in the midst, before, just before in the midst and, and after the storm. And it seemed to be a kind of a chastisement, honestly, to an emergency management community um, that had drawn up plans with sort of clear lines of command and control, but that many people on the ground in the flooded areas um, had relied on their own communities and networks of, of trust. And, and so there was a, a misunderstanding there or, or a mismatch in what was expected to happen and what actually happened. Did that resonate for you as well? I think the issue of trust is one that emergency management has been wrestling with. But I think sometimes it gets turned into this question around what can be done to make people trust or to make people follow official guidance. And it sidesteps the bigger question of really, uh, why should people trust? I think individuals have a great deal of faith that government will do certain things. Sometimes they have faith that what government will do is leave them on their own. And that tends to hold true. Emergency management itself, we, at, we tell people that they have to be prepared to be self-sufficient for a certain measure of time, right? And we often will give guidance to families to do things like take preparedness actions. In Tornado Alley, we advise people that they build a shelter or get to a shelter, right? We give people advice that they can't always actually follow because there are systemic barriers in place that aren't being addressed by emergency management. And so I think emergency managers and public officials in general sometimes come off as kind of cold and uncaring, and the message isn't relatable, right? Because we're asking people to do things that are outside of their control as though that weren't the case. And then afterwards, we also see these narratives of blame that hold people accountable for larger systemic challenges. And we see that, for example, with the indigenous communities along the coast after Hurricane Ida, 
right? There's this narrative that people should evacuate or perhaps actually shouldn't live there at all that ignores the fact that it was the U.S. government and Indian removal that in many cases placed communities in harm way, decisions around oil and gas exploration that exacerbated coastal land loss, and larger impacts in the regional economy that leave people practicing subsistence lifestyles where sometimes they simply can't afford to leave. Oh, there's so many important points there. One of which, of course, rings in my ears as a historian is that if you're um, you know, trying to understand a community and your depth of historical interest goes two or three years, you're not going to get to those kinds of points that you were just making, Alessandra. But that's a, that's a lot of work for emergency managers, isn't it? To try to um, and, and in some cases, they may be new to the field, they may be new to the area, and then suddenly they have to try to get their minds around the deep history of a community. Do they have the resources to do that kind of work, to gain that sort of understanding that builds trust? No, to be honest, I think they often don't. I think it is a very big ask. The field of emergency management is, is in a difficult place right now. We're seeing a lot more calls for emergency management to be more equitable, to be more just to take into account histories of place. And at the same time, we're not necessarily empowering the people that are in those roles to be able to do so. We're not giving them the time and the resources to build deep relationships with communities. We're not necessarily giving them the training to get access to that historical information. And so we're putting people in this position where I will often see folks in the field who care deeply. They came to the field because they care deeply, and yet they're not set up to succeed. And they're being called out again for these larger systemic failures that certainly they have a role in addressing, but they can't single-handedly address, for example, the absolute shortage of affordable and safe housing in the United States. I couldn't agree with you more, and it actually brings to mind discussions I've had. Um, I don't know if you know Jim Kendra. He's the co-director of the Disaster Research Center at University of Delaware and um, was an emergency management educator at University of North Texas for many years. And I'll never forget what Jim said. What we ask emergency managers to do is to figure out how to get the sandbags there in time and also deal with 100 years of deferred maintenance of the infrastructure of the region. And we'd like it all done today before the news crews arrive. It's, it's a sort of impossible problem of dealing with both individual issues and structural issues simultaneously. But government officials must know that, right? Don't they know it's an impossible ask? I think that that's a difficult question. I mean, before I even try to answer that, I would actually say that there are a few other things that make it even more impossible, notably the fact that we ask emergency managers to do all of this while also trying to care for their own families and their own mental health. And, and we see a tremendous mental health crisis among first responders and emergency managers who are faced with these sort of draconian tasks. One of our challenges that, that I feel we have is that these challenges that we're dealing with in emergency management, they span longer cycles of time than, for example, an election cycle. Right? So there's a certain incentive sometimes uh, when it comes to political cycles to perhaps overpromise or underprepare and hope for the best during the term of a particular administration. And so we'll see that even when emergency managers have strong relationships with their local elected officials and other policymakers, there's still a disconnect sometimes between what emergency management realistically can do 
and what is being promised or what is being expected. So we have, for example, in the Stafford Act, the enabling legislation for a lot of what we do in emergency management, we have some pretty strict limitations. We don't have a human rights framing. We don't guarantee people access to housing, for example. Right? We typically tend to help people get close to where they were previous to an event if they've done certain things, if they're a homeowner, if they carry insurance, if it's a declared disaster. So we have a disconnect between what our programs and our policies legally can do and what is being promised and what is being talked about. And so emergency managers get put sometimes in this position of being the person that does a whole lot of saying no, right, uh, within this broader context that makes it appear as though they have the ability to do otherwise. Now, that said, emergency managers can exercise discretion in, in many cases and, and sometimes do. So there are also challenges institutionally with cultures of, for example, blaming victims or cultures of really prioritizing efficiency and speed over rendering equitable and just assistance. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to emergency management teacher and theorist and author Alessandra Giralaman today. And I want to talk about your book, Disaster Recovery Through the Lens of Justice. And, and you published this before COVID, just on the eve of COVID, if I've got the timing right. But as I was reading it, there's so much of it that's applicable to understanding the disaster we're living with right now. I, I, I want to ask you just first of all, I mean, it's a powerful title and the, the term justice, the word justice is one that we hear with the term environmental justice a lot. But disaster justice is not a term that I've heard enough of. And I think it's an important idea. So let's start with that. When you invoke that concept, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, well, at the time that I was working on, on the manuscript that like you mentioned, we weren't really hearing a lot of conversation around disaster justice. Uh, we're hearing much more of it now, and that's something that I find really heartening. I think justice, like equity, like resilience, is a term that gets thrown around a lot without being carefully defined. I do also think that there is a danger in over-defining certain terms and sort of making that box too small. But I think justice, we know it when it's not there, right? We look back and we say, that was awful. What happened there shouldn't have happened. You could say that about Hurricane Maria. You could say that about things with COVID. You could say that about Hurricane Laura. We can say that all the time, right? So it's easier to know it when you see it in retrospect than to sort of figure it out as you go. There are a lot of approaches to thinking about and defining justice. And one of the things that I tried to do in the book was actually to walk through some of that, right? To ask, what does it look like to think of justice from a distributive perspective, right? The goods and the bads and thinking about things like environmental justice. What does it look like to think about justice from a procedural or a participatory perspective? And really what most resonates with me in this space of thinking about disasters is really the notion of capacities ju justice and a focus on well-being. The idea that justice really means fairness and equity. It means that people have access to the networks, the support, the resources, the opportunities, the things that they need to survive and thrive to get where they want to go as they define it, right? And a really important tenet uh, that really I would connect a lot to the environmental justice movement is the idea that we need to flip the burden of proof, 
right? That justice means that we're not asking community members, individuals to say, here's why I'm deserving of assistance. We're asking government and other institutions to very clearly explain and justify why some people are not getting assistance. Right? We place a tremendous burden on individuals and communities to prove their damages, to prove the value of what they lost, to prove their needs. And we place that burden on them at a time when they're already in pain, already experiencing negative consequences of an event. And we spend a lot of money, right, on consultants, on processes to try to make sure that we're stewarding the federal dollar as best we can. And it's not that that isn't important, but individuals and people are more important. And I, I think we've lost sight of that. There's so many things I want to ask you about this. So it, is it your sense that um, Americans in general live in a condition of disaster justice? That is, they live with certain guarantees that if a disaster strikes, they're going to have um, some assistance from government, they're going to have some um, uh, emergency management support, that that's a, just sort of there as a guarantee, like we might consider other forms of legally guaranteed justice, but that there are some groups, and they tend to be historically minoritized groups, that are denied that. So I want to understand like who's in and who's out, because maybe it's everybody that's facing disaster and justice in America, and we haven't, and we don't talk about that. Or is it that it's truly some people do have justice when it comes to disasters in America and others are fully denied it? I think there certainly is a differentiation, right? We, in the United States, we see very different outcomes and access to resources for individuals based off of factors like class, race, geography, right? Many factors. However, I actually think that issues of disaster justice are, are present for everyone because we're looking at increasing frequency of disaster events, right? We're looking at the impacts of climate change firsthand. And even though right now those impacts are felt more for some persons than for others, Eventually, the increases in wealth inequality are going to be felt across the board. In fact, I think you see a little bit of this right now with COVID-19, where some people are finding that they're impacted by, for example, the difficulty in finding employees for certain businesses. Right? And, and those impacts begin to sort of cascade out. Um, in this country, we have privileged property in, in many ways, right? Coming back to the foundational documents of the nation, right? Coming back to sort of the Lockean idea of what it is that matters when an individual puts their labor into land and what value that then gives them as a citizen in a society. And so we certainly have a huge disparity in terms of the assistance that can be expected for someone who, for example, is a renter or is in publicly subsidized housing, as opposed to someone who's a homeowner. But even beyond that, um, we see a very big difference in access to safety, right? Access to any sort of guarantees of assistance. And, and the vast majority of what people might consider the middle class in the United States is one disaster away from no longer sitting in that space of privilege, mm -hmm. right? Whether that disaster is a hurricane, 
or an illness in the family. We don't have a tremendously great safety net whatsoever. And we tend to carry a lot of debt, right? And a lot of wealth is housed in a housing market that we had seen crash, right, in 2008. And we're now seeing sort of artificially inflated with COVID. But we know that rising disaster risk is also going to impact home values. So I, I really think it's a problem across all levels of society. Let's talk a little bit about the conversations that you spark when you use a term like justice, because um, you know I've, I've studied the history of emergency management for a long time, and and it's a it's an old profession in the United States. I mean, in the Cold War, it had you know very specific roles to play uh, at the federal level to prepare for nuclear attack. It's always been um, emergency management, even if it went by different names uh, at the local level, often coming out of fire departments or sheriff's offices, and quite often. Um, the discussion has been about, um, you know, helping neighbors it, almost in a kind of a folksy way. And then when it became professionalized, it was around efficiency, basically, and carrying out your routines and tasks almost in a military way. So I wonder, and, and feel free to, to edit or, or alter or change anything I just said, but that's a very basic history of emergency management in the United States. But um, I don't remember the history of emergency management, the concept of justice being discussed too much. And I wonder what it does to the conversation when you come into the emergency operations center and say, okay, now we need to think about everything we're going to do here with this disaster through the lens of justice. That's, that's a big question. And that's a challenging question that speaks, I think, to some things that are to a certain extent shifting in the field. Um, when I first got into emergency management, it was a lot harder to talk about justice and equity. Um, in, in some cases, it might get you not so gently escorted out the door. I, I think we've seen a little bit of a shift for, for many reasons. Um, one reason being that we now have a lot more paths to emergency management, right? We've seen an increase in, for example, programs in higher education that bring some social science and some historical perspective and even sometimes some community organizing perspective to the study of emergency management. We moved beyond just teaching people how to move pegs on a board, right? We got beyond just logistics. So there's that piece of it. I do think, though, that people who have been in emergency management for a long time, including persons who are old enough to have worked in civil defense, um, have in many cases seen historically time after time some of these inequitable outcomes and do have interest in trying to improve those outcomes. They may not be comfortable talking about race or class. They may not always be comfortable talking in terms of justice and equity, but there is oftentimes a, a deep interest in seeing better outcomes for people. This, this is a field that attracts persons who care, right? who care about what's happening in the world around them and, and want to be part of the solution. I think one of the challenges that the field has in trying to talk about justice and equity and, and all of these, these topics now 
um, is the fact that it is very difficult to change institutions, right? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to change those measures and those markers of success. So some of the professionalization of emergency management, right, it took us to looking at certain things like efficiency. And we have, even now within FEMA, in efforts at defining equity, we also have a strong focus on equality. Our job is to efficiently steward the federal dollar or the local dollar, right? And our job is to make sure that everybody is treated the same. But that's not actually equity, right? Because we know that people start from different starting points and what we actually need to do and what makes people who work for government deeply, deeply uncomfortable is we actually need to sometimes treat people differently from each other to try to make sure that we have better and more equitable outcomes. And that makes it a little bit more difficult from a public management perspective to really figure out how you measure, how you adjust and how you hold yourself accountable to the public. One of the things that I really liked about the book was a powerful way that you wrote, and you've already mentioned this a little bit, the powerful way that you write about disaster survivors, victims and, and survivors. And I, I want to get you to explain that a little bit. We've been talking sort of on, on the emergency management and emergency manager side of things here a little bit. But, you know, this desire for justice and, and maybe the catalyst for justice seems to me can be driven also by victims and survivors. How do you take stock of that? And, and how do you, you know, it, how do you write about that in the book? Yeah, I think that there's a certain language of victimization that is very prevalent um, when we look at disasters. And it, it sometimes can detract from a lot of the power and the strength and the resilience that's inherent in communities. But we see that in any disaster, there is a lot of response that happens immediately on the ground. Right? There are people helping each other. There are mutual aid groups springing up. There are emergent organizations coming out of the event. Right? We see people stepping forward to help each other out and to build on the resilience that they have. And sometimes when emergency management steps in, when government steps in, it actually takes some of that away. It actually gets in the way of what's being organized on the ground. And I think our, our challenge is to both respect that strength that is present in communities while also not using it as an excuse to not provide the resources and the support that are necessary. I think one of the greatest injustices that is done to disaster survivors is to take away their power of choice and their efficacy, right? We sometimes will categorize people as vulnerable and in that process uh, refuse to see some of the strength that they have and also refuse to recognize their right um, to choice. The other thing that I wrote about in the book is the dangers of a charity model, right? This assumption that persons who are being assisted should be grateful and, and therefore don't need to have a voice in how that assistance is rendered. And sometimes that assistance is actually harmful over time. It is actually a less efficient use of resources to give people things they don't actually need than it is to work with them to identify what they need and, and how they can best be supported. 
Another example of this is that many of the small coastal communities that I work with in Louisiana, small tribal communities, have these amazing histories of adaptation in the environment, of building up community, of connection to place. They have so much that we can all collectively learn from, right? If we can move away from just saying, if you flooded, you're at risk, you deserve sympathy and a bucket of bleach. So um, that powerfully said, and I actually, I wonder if you could follow up a little bit. People will be fascinated to know how you do this work, um, particularly with these communities. Can you tell us a little bit more about who you work with? You talk about these um, coastal tribal communities in, in Louisiana and, and maybe talk a little bit about how the hurricanes in the midst of COVID affected them, Hurricanes Laura and Hurricane Ida, you know, these compound disasters um, in the midst of, of COVID was something people were really worried about. But I mean, you had experience with the communities that were facing it there on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So there are many indigenous communities in coastal Louisiana. Uh, some of them are recognized by the state of Louisiana, but not by the United States government. That's its own injustice and its own large issue right there, right? Just the absurd notion that an indigenous community has to prove to the colonizing nation that it that it is real and it exists. Um, but apart, apart from that, um, these are communities that have been working in uh, many areas of climate adaptation, hazard mitigation for decades because they're really on the front line, right? Impacted by events like the BP oil spill, impacted by the oil and gas canals that have exacerbated land loss and impacted by hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. And what typically happens following a disaster like Hurricane Ida is that those communities are, are left on their own. And because they're not federally recognized, they don't have a government to government relationship with the federal government, and they have very limited connections to the state. Uh, the Point Ashen Indian tribe, for example, I believe waited over a week, possibly two weeks, to hear anything from local government. Um, food and water, immediate emergency provisions were driven down by allies such as myself. They waited over a month. Um, to get electricity back. Right? So there are a lot of additional barriers that they face uh, on top of what rural remote communities face at all, right, in, in general with these, these kinds of events. And I've been really fortunate to have spent, I mean, now almost 20 years um, in, in fellowship and friendship with some just amazing leaders of these communities and, and to have learned so much from them, I'm sure much more than they've ever learned from me. And I, I think that uh, that ability to build those relationships is, is tremendously important um, to this work because I see a lot of very well-intentioned people in the field um, wanting to engage with frontline communities, but they have limited timeframes, right? And so they, they come in, they think they may have a solution. They don't, they're not always fully able to build the relationships to understand what's already in place locally or what's needed and then their their time runs out and 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 they leave and that becomes in many ways actually another burden on the local communities and the other thing that that I see is that the the ways of living and the ways of knowing of many of the indigenous indigenous communities 
um, really aren't recognized by our scientific and political and legal systems. And so that also diminishes, in many cases, their ability to act to support and protect their livelihoods. There's something to me so important about what you're describing. It applies to researchers across the humanities and social sciences and other, other disciplines as well. Um, who may want to work in a concept like disaster justice, and, and then they want to work on it somewhere. It, it's not a free-floating thing. They, they want it, and, and this could be in the Tohoku region of Japan um, after, you know, the 311 triple disaster. It could be, um, you know, in communities hit by the Indian Ocean tsunami. We see this all in places where there's a sort of rush of researchers in to communities particularly after a disaster, sometimes before, and they want to build a relationship in the moment, and it comes from a good place. They want to gather perishable data, they want to write important work, and then they hope that that will lead to an ongoing relationship with the community. But there's a fatigue that comes, and sometimes there's irresponsibility that comes with that too. There's an ethical lapse, maybe this blind spot sometimes for researchers who don't realize that even their presence there is a is a drain on a community it's it's not it takes time to answer someone's questions to invite them into your home um so i wonder if you have any reaction to that problem as a researcher and how we can do better as researchers to help establish these relationships that can be both supportive and mutual as my colleague max liberon will say um and, but also yield important social science findings I think it's a tremendous challenge that we have in the field. It's something that I talk about a lot with colleagues and, and students, and I certainly don't know that I always get it right. Um, I, the first thing that I always advise people to do is to approach their interactions with communities with humility, uh, to really come from a place of, of wanting to listen and learn, and to be certain to be invited and not overstay your welcome. I think we sometimes fail as a research community um, to talk with each other and to coordinate with each other. Um, instead, we sort of race to the finish line, right? We're all sort of collectively looking for local partners and that places a lot of burdens on those local partners that exist, who realistically, if there aren't established relationships, don't necessarily have a good way to judge, right? What are they going to get from one partner versus another? What's a meaningful engagement? Um, what won't be? I, I certainly um, come from a place of participatory action research. I think advocacy is a really important part of the work that we do. And I also think it's very important um, to build relationships that, where possible, minimize the power disparities so that the communities that we work with own data, right? It's their data, it's their experience, and they have the absolute right to say no to stop a project, to keep data, no matter how interesting or relevant it, it seems to us. I mean, I also think that when we're engaging with communities that are dealing with immediate and pressing issues, we have to take extra care to cause no harm. So for example, you know, we have many communities who wish to remain in place. For, for good reasons, as is their right in the face of a, a climate changing around them. And uh, I think we, we need to take care in how we present their situations um, to policymakers and to others. 
And I also think that it's very important um, to really think about what the burdens of participation are, not just with frontline communities, but even in just public engagement in emergency management and in planning. It's very often the case that in some way or another, the academics in the room, the consultants in the room, the government officials in the room, they're, they're getting paid to be there, right? They're getting some benefit from being there. Whereas the community members are quite likely taking time away from work, um, reliving trauma and processes that are not trauma-informed, um, having to find childcare, and having no real recompense for their time other than the slim hope that the information and the data they provide may have some impact on policies and processes. And, and we often overpromise what our research and what our policy work can actually do um, for the, the real needs of individuals in, in real time, when, when at best what we may be doing is helping to document a problem that over time will lead to some partial solution that may never have any sort of positive impact on the people who participate. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Alessandra Geralaman today. And just come back to the book for a second and maybe tie into COVID. So you're talking about disaster recovery through the lens of justice. And I really appreciate your multifaceted discussion of justice and emergency management. So the concept of recovery has always really bugged me in, in emergency management um, because of the reasons that you stated very well. Um, just about you know how arbitrary the time often seems, but also that sometimes the check boxes of everything that means recovery, the boxes have been checked. But as you said, that the the results are vastly unjust and inequitable. So that's everything you know and have written about. So in the middle of this pandemic, um, Joe Biden is elected, and his um, catchphrase is "Build Back Better." And and it's three words that probably when they're taken out of the context. Most people have no idea that that, that concept has a, a emergency management disaster resilience background to it. Were you surprised to see that terminology? Did it give you some hope that disaster recovery in a meaningful way could be applied to COVID? I wouldn't say that it that it gave me hope, unfortunately. I tried. Um, I'm sorry. I I, <laughs> I, I think that um, when when we talk about building back better in the context of emergency management, we tend to fail to ask a better for whom, right? Or even just in general, who we're building back for. We tend to look at numbers in the aggregate. And if you look at numbers in the aggregate, New Orleans, for example, has actually recovered pretty well from Hurricane Katrina, right? If you look at things like GDP, if you look at things like percentage of housing units rebuild or occupy, right? Similarly, if you look at disaster risk reduction, if you look at percentage of homes that have been removed from the floodplain or, or elevated above a base flood elevation depth, right? That all looks really good. It doesn't look so good when you ask who's benefiting and who isn't, right? When you look at Displacement, for example, when you look at the fact that we we know that a lot of people who get uh, bought out of a floodplain don't actually end up better off somewhere else. Um, they're still at risk, just in a different location. It's not so dissimilar from some of the homeless policy in this country, which has tended to push people elsewhere, right, and, and sort of treat that as a as a fix 
um, when right. really it's just it's just a shift. So in, in recovery, when we talk about building back better and we do that without talking about who we're building back for, um, I think it's actually very dangerous. And I worry about that um, with COVID-19 as well, right? I, I think there is an opportunity to make, for example, some infrastructure investments um, that are beneficial, but I, I don't see us vastly um, reforming the working conditions for the vast majority of quote unquote frontline workers. I, I don't see us making it easier for them to, for example, organize to protect their rights, including their right to, to health and, and life, right? As opposed to, to my right to continue to receive you know, shipments from a large distributors warehouse every time I want to order something online. Right. Um, so I, to me, that that is something that, that worries me. And I also don't think that we talk enough about disaster risk creation. Um, I think Build Back Better is part of this um, sustainable development, sort of very forward looking ethos, which, which is important in its own right. I don't mean to diminish the importance of, of trying to, to be more resilient as we quote unquote recover. Um, but I, I think we can't do that um, at the expense of, of those who, for many reasons, are rendered unable to afford to live at that higher standard of safety. What does the administration need to hear? I mean, I, I'm, um, to put it mildly, distressed about the rush to normalization and and the desire, and I look, I mean, that's an elected official's prerogative, and sometimes you might even argue it's their responsibility to try to drive people towards a sort of optimism, um, particularly in the midst of a disaster. But we also expect, I expect that behind the scenes, they're actually taking care of the building and the back and the better and for whom issues. And I worry, or I guess I wonder from your perspective, what is the president or what are the governors hearing Right now, I mean, you gave one concrete example. Building back better from COVID means more investment in healthcare workers, training, mental health, higher wages across the board. That's one example. What else do they need to be focused on right now, do you think? I think COVID points out some pretty glaring fault lines in, in our society. So certainly the challenges that we New existed with regards to access to healthcare and preventative care. Um, the challenges that we knew existed in education, we're seeing a K to 12 system that's more and more privatized and not leading to, to better results and, and outcomes for, for children. Right. I think we, we have a lot of challenges around affordable housing, particularly for renters that the, the moratorium on evictions that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface and, and those issues are, are going to to remain moving forward. And it's actually my my fear. And one of the things that keeps me up at night um, is that the fact that with COVID, we did see some small measure of attention to certain needs um, that when these systemic problems rear their head in the future, it'll be that much easier to look away and say, but we already did that. We, we, we had a moratorium. We gave people a break on their student loans. Um, that neglects the fact that these underlying systemic issues remain and people are going to come out of this pandemic if, if we come out of it, right, with less resources than they had going in, even less of a safety net, even even less of a buffer for the next shock that we know is coming because we're not realistically dealing with climate. 
Were you surprised that FEMA was made the lead agency at one point in the pandemic in the in the spring of of 2020? And and I wonder how you how you evaluate FEMA's Federal Emergency Management Agency's performance. I mean, it it's, it was an astounding event. I mean, every emergency operations center in America, I guess, a major one, activated all at once. We've never really seen that in American history. How did they do? Or maybe more importantly, what did you see that you thought was working and, and what areas of reform would you suggest within the federal emergency management system? It was interesting to to watch what happened with the pandemic from an emergency management perspective, um, because a lot of the things that you would like to see in terms of best practices weren't present, right? So we we saw, for example, that many states and even the nation had pandemic plans that everybody seemed to forget about once we actually had a pandemic. Um, we saw that existing structures for recovery that in some places were already present um, were sometimes ignored as governors set up their own task forces that leaned more heavily on the economic aspects of recovery than on the public health aspects. Uh, we also, I think, saw a lack of a consistent federal strategy that left states competing against each other. And as you mentioned, we had every EOC activated. Well, our emergency management systems in the U.S. depend heavily on mutual aid, right? So we depend on being able to call upon our neighbors for assistance. And when every EOC is activated, that ability to call upon your neighbors is gone. Now, FEMA is and, and can be very effective at, at certain things around logistics, for example. And so I do think that some of the partnerships around vaccination, I mean, I think there were many ways that, that the agency um, was, was used well. But I, I do think that for the future, we are going to need to resolve how public health and um, agencies such as FEMA really can work together in a consistent and coherent strategy. Because for the general public, where you already had you know, somewhat of a distrust in science to begin with, the fact that the messaging seems to change every day has, has made trust much more difficult to come by at, at a time when I think we really needed it. I wanted to ask you about one of the things that's a, a fascination of mine, and that's about investigation. And I wonder, you know, when you talk about disaster justice and injustice, how do you understand the role of disaster investigation in all of this? In other words, we hear a lot about learning lessons. I mean, it's repeated so much. We learn the lessons of this disaster. But by my account, it's usually very rushed if if it happens at all. I don't know what you think about that or or how one could make a, a demand for disaster investigation from a justice standpoint, but I, I'm all ears because I, I think we, that's something we absolutely need with COVID. Yeah, I mean, often, you know, what we see is we see after action reports and, and we see efforts at some sort of postmortem after an event to try to understand, you know, sort of what worked and, and what didn't and and those are very pro forma and they don't have all of the right players in the room. We don't tend to ask individuals and families what their experience was, right? We ask the first responders themselves to talk about which truck got where it needed to go quickly enough and whether there was enough water in a particular warehouse. And it's not that those things don't matter, but they're not the full picture. Um, I would like to see more of an investigation um, for, for many reasons after COVID, right? Looking both at what happened in terms of existing plans and procedures and the ways in which they were and weren't followed, looking to see what we can learn um, to the future and, and really 
engaging more deeply with impacted individuals and families, because I think we have an opportunity to render many things visible right now um, while there is some attention, right? And it's just a question of where that attention gets focused and, and how it gets focused um, that's going to be particularly important. So for example, we could ask questions around labor issues, right? Or we could ask questions around um, the ways in which um, costs in healthcare are borne by individuals. Um, or, or we could just, you know, ask why the male couldn't deliver kits sooner. Why, why is there often such an emphasis on these sort of logistics questions rather than these more searching questions around justice, which these are not, I mean, it can be a high-flown concept, but it can also just be about were people able to eat? Were they able to get health care? I mean, those are logistical questions as well, but they don't surface as much, as you said, as, as like how much of this arrived at this place in this time? What were the staff levels? Those seem to be the things that often appear in the after-action reports. Well, two things come to mind. Uh, one is that emergency management is by and large a coordinating function. And emergency management, when it comes to a disaster event, is often going to focus on what it is that is within the control of emergency management, right? And right. so in asking what worked, what didn't, um, there is a certain logic to, to keeping it to the sphere of influence that emergency managers actually have. Um, however, right, I think we also can say that collectively as a society, um, we're not very good at tackling these deep systemic issues. We're, we're not very good at talking about race. We're not very good at talking about the ways in which, for example, um, the impacts of enslavement still continue to impact property ownership, which impact access to resources after disasters, right? We, we're not really at a, at a place where we're seeing a big discussion around reparations or truth and reconciliation. And, and yet we're in this, we're in this moment where um, it, it seems like we should be having these conversations. And if, if anything else, it almost seems as though COVID-19 um, sort of allowed people to look away a little bit from what might otherwise have been a, a more pivotal, pivotal moment in terms of things like what was happening with Black Lives Matter. What I take away from your book, among many things in this discussion, is that um, that it is exactly the place where we need to be having discussions around justice. And I know it's putting a lot on the shoulders of, an, of a profession which is overly bureaucratized, underfunded, um, often finds itself, as you say, with a limited sphere of influence, facing huge structural problems. I'm talking about emergency management here. Um, but at the same time, practitioners are often the ones also that they are in the space, in the communities. They are there on the ground building relationships and they will get the ear of policymakers, even for a short period of time, in a way that I cannot, frankly, that a historian, a social scientist often, often cannot. So I guess I often feel like it's an unfair burden to put on emergency managers, but they're the ones I, I want in that space. I mean, I do feel like that's where that dis disaster justice discussion has to happen. You and I can have it here. It's great. But I think it's more important to have it when the governor is in the room and they're talking about what did we learn from COVID-19? I absolutely agree. I, I think it's a burden that emergency management can't bear alone. 
And so I, I think part of what emergency yeah. managers need to do is not just to raise the issue, but to expand the table to bring in, for example, historians, right, to bring that perspective and, and to say from the beginning, when we're seeing the systems and the processes be set up, I mean, yes, we need to know how many forklifts we have. We also need to talk to some social scientists. Okay, we're almost up on time with my discussion um, with Alessandra Chiralaman. And um, I, do, I just want to ask you one more quick question. I, and I'm being a little greedy with your time, but I was asked a question recently, and, and I think I didn't answer it very well. I was asked, are you a researcher? Or are you an activist? And I kind of went around and round and gave a kind of a, a kind of a non-answer. And that later I really was like, I don't think I've been very clear in my mind as to how I should, when somebody asks you a question like that, how, how can I use that as an opportunity to really try to explain what's needed in emergency management and disaster research? So I want to learn from you. So how do you answer that question when somebody asks you, Professor, are you a researcher or are you an activist? I, I would say that I'm both. Um, I, I would say that I'm an applied researcher and that I believe very deeply that research has to have purpose and meaning and it has to be done in partnership and it has to speak to real world issues. Um, by that same token, I understand that there's a very big difference between somebody who might say, I'm an activist and that's entirely what they're doing and that's the sphere that they're in. And a big difference between the day-to-day -day work of, of activists who I interact with, who, who really are just activists above and beyond everything else. I, I think we need also people who are boundary spanners, right? People who understand how the bureaucracies work, have spent time in government, um, have some of the social science and the research background, and also have the relationships with activists. Because I think these large problems um, they require a mix of strategies all coming together at once, right? They they require um, professors trying to get this next generation of emergency managers to think a little bit more deeply about justice and equity. They require activists standing outside City Hall calling out and being loud and, and, and forcing people to not look away, right? They require community members and individuals standing up for themselves and telling their stories and showing what they're experiencing. They require those of us with experience and research to try to put this data into ways that policymakers can see and hear and, and to render it visible. I think it all has to come together. So I, I struggle with that question all the time when it's asked me because it's a little bit struggle. of a cop out to say I'm both. <laughs> no, you didn't struggle at all. I, I'm glad I have the transcript now. I can go study that and I'll know what to say. And I think it's, and I really appreciate that you mentioned teaching um, there too, because I often feel like people forget that teaching is activism. Uh, in, in the real sense of the word, that you're actively imparting knowledge and values to students. And um, I think that's an important, important feature of this. Okay, we're on, we're on the way out of this, but do you have a next book in the, in the works? Do you have something more for us in the near future, I hope? Well, uh, you, you mentioned the edited volume that just mm -hmm. came out where I asked colleagues to respond specifically to the principles of justice and say if they did or didn't apply. I also am working on a manuscript with some colleagues that looks at the intersection of property law and property rights in the United States um, with community-driven um, resettlement and some of the justice and equity issues in, in that space. So that'll, that'll be out later this year. Okay, so be sure to get your hands on Disaster Recovery Through the Lens of Justice and also the new edited volume, 
Justice, Equity, and Emergency Management. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. But for the coming month, we're going to have COVID Calls um, two or three times a day leading up to March 16th. So please do check at US of Disaster for updates. And I want to thank my guest, Alessandra Giralaman. Um, what a pleasure to learn from you today. And, and thanks for the work that you do, Alessandra. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.